Good morning. Hi, my name is Bethany Aini. I will be reading today's scripture passage. You can follow along on page 12 in your pew Bible or on the screens. Genesis 18, 16 through 33. Then the men set out from there, and they looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in this city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. The Lord, suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he found, when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Beth. All right. Well, if you are, uh, kid, Kira, I'm all, I don't know what the, uh, what the ages are now. <laughs> okay, four to kindergarten, you can be dismissed. Thank you. That's what happens when you're not on staff anymore. Um, and uh, as well, if you are, uh, are going to be experiencing the sermon as a, English as a second language, you can be dismissed now as well. Uh, and as they're doing that, I'll just say good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Ben. I'm one of the uh, pastor elders here at Community, and uh, I'm being sent out by our church to plant Midtown Community Church in, uh, in just six very short Sundays, so if you can hear the fear and trepidation in my voice, it is real. Um, but we are <laughs> excited about what the Lord is doing and, uh, and can't wait to, uh, to, to start having services there. But I, I also, in line of, in, in, in the same vein of Scott's, um, I love you sappiness, I'm just not going to get that many more chances to say this. 
I love you, and uh, I'm going to miss you, and we'll stop that for now. But um, it has been a joy to pastor here, and uh, thank you for that opportunity and for the way that you all pursue Jesus and his word together. This church has shaped me so profoundly. Thank you. Um, well, in uh, a more somber moment of a recent comedy special that I watched, uh, the comedian sings these words. He says, hey, what can I say? We were overdue, but it will be over soon. Just wait. And those words are sung in reference to what he calls that funny feeling. And that funny feeling is the anxiety that the world may be ending soon. Apocalyptic events, especially rights, just seem to be a fascination and dread of our current age. Most of us, for one reason or another, feel like things are on fire right now. In that comedy special, that particular comedian is, is worried about a crushing mental health crisis in our country, about impending doom of climate change and climate disaster and the seemingly unavoidable corruption in the halls of power when power and money get in bed together. Uh, for some others, it's our society's wildly evolving and almost non-existent moral compass which is leading to social breakdown in our own country. Now, now whether or not the, the world is as close to going up in flames as we think is debatable. I think every society has a tendency to think that we're on the brink, that, we, that, we, that things are as bad as they could be in our own generation. But what is not debatable is that so many of us today feel as if that is true. We feel like we are on the brink and so the question Genesis 18 forces us to wrestle with is this, who has God called his people to be, especially when it feels like the world is on fire? What does God want us as his church to be and to do in an age where the word doom scrolling is in our vocabulary? Why has God saved us and placed us on earth in such a time and place as this? And we see here in Abraham's life, for the first time in the Bible, this truth fleshed out for us, that God calls his people to be priests who stand in the gap for the people of this world, no matter how far gone things may seem. So we're going to unpack that identity as the people of God this morning. But first, would you pray with me? Father, we come to you and uh, we are in desperate need. We are in desperate need of a word from you. So Holy Spirit, would you speak your word to us clearly? Would you knock the cynicism out of our hearts and give us hope? And would you show us our role that you have given us to play in the divine story that is playing out in our world? We thank you that we can call on you and that you hear us and love us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning as we look at the identity of the people of God as priests, I want to do that under three headings. First, we're going to look at what it means to be a priest. 
Second, we'll look at our example of a priest in Abraham. And finally, we'll look at our great priest. What it means to be a priest, Abraham's example of a priest, and our great priest. First, what does it mean to be a priest? And in this passage, Abraham functions like a priest before God's people even had priests. But as we see later on in the, in the story of the Bible, uh, in Exodus chapter 19, and then it's reiterated in 1 Peter chapter 2 in the New Testament, God does call his entire people a kingdom of priests. And as we look at Abraham, we begin to understand our calling as priests of God. And in verse 18 of this text this morning, we see the general principle of what it means to be a priest. It's that God blesses us so that we will bless the world. You see that there in verse 18. God blesses Abraham. He made him great and mighty that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. That's reiterating what he promised to him in chapter 12. Priests stand as the channel, uh, the conduit of God's blessing to the world. But, But what is it specifically about the work of God's people as priests that brings blessing to the world? Like, what is it, like, specifically to what we do and are called to be as priests that brings blessing. Well, we see two components of that here in this text this morning in verses 19 through 21 of what it means to be a priest. And and taken all together, it's that we are to be holy intercessors. So we'll take each of those words and look at them separately. The first component that we're called to be holy, I see in verse 19 of our text. Would you look at that with me? It says there, God speaking, he says, For I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised to him. And you see what God says here. God says, I chose Abraham so that he and the nation that would come from him would be righteous and just in the world. God chooses Abraham and his family to reflect his beautiful character back into the world. They were called to be different. But but that's not all. Do you see the final piece of the logic here in verse 19? God chooses Abraham so that he and his family might be holy, might, might reflect the holy, different character of God, so that, at the end of the verse, God may bring what he promised to Abraham, namely, blessing to all the nations through him. Though, in other words, God designed our holiness of life as the people of God to be the gravitational center that draws the people of this world in to look at what it means to have a better way to live. Our holiness leads to the world's blessing. We will be no good for the world if we are no different than the world. Christianity is meant to be weird. Like, not weird in the uh, Christian bumper sticker or only Christian t-shirt kind of way, but, but in a way that's much more substantive, that our lives are marked as different from the world around us. Put simply in the context of our passage, if we look similar to Sodom, we will be no good for Sodom. Just look at Lot and his family in the next chapter. 
To be called a priest means that you and I live a countercultural way of life that reflects the beautiful difference of God's character, which defies the world's categories. And we don't have to look very far for this. The early church demonstrated this beautifully. The late historian of the first century, Larry Hurtado, noted that the early church was distinct in that it had a unique social ethic that defied the world's categories. So here, here are the five things that the church, the early church brought together in their life that, that the Roman society never brought together under one banner. No one group had all of these five characteristics. This is what Hurtado says was true of the early church. They cared for the poor. They were multi-ethnic. They practiced self-sacrificial love and forgiveness They were against abortion and infanticide, and they had a revolutionary sexual ethic. Now, that doesn't sound like any one group in our society today either, does it? But brought together, that is holiness. That is reflecting the unique character of God for the world to see so that the world might be blessed as the people of God reflect his holy character. And church, we are called to do the same thing for the good and blessing of our world. We are called to be unique, to be different. And before we move on, I have to make this comment as an aside. In verse 19, do you see the implication here for families with children? In verse 19, let me reiterate it. He says, For I've chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Let me speak to parents specifically. The, the, the real work of God is not out there somewhere. The real work of God is in your home as well. Uh, God has called us as parents to reflect his beautiful character to our children. May we strive together, those of us who are parents, to show our kids what it means to reflect the goodness and justice and love of God through our actions. And through our priestly work in our own homes, the world is going to be blessed as we send out children to reflect the beautiful, holy character of God to the world. So don't overlook your holy calling to raise children. It's beautiful. It's work from the Lord. And let's stay encouraged to continue to prioritize it as the real priestly work that it is. So we're called to be holy as priests. Second, we're called to be intercessors. Let's read verses 20 and 21 again. It says, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now let me, let me front load this question here, and it may be on many of your minds as you read this text. Why is God so angry? Uh, why does it seem like God is so quick to jump towards judging Sodom? You, you may even ask the question, why would I want to follow a God who even threatens to wipe out a whole city, let alone who does wipe out a whole city, if you keep reading into the next chapter? Well, we have to look at the text and, and really understand the character and nature of this city to understand why it is that God interacts with it in this way. 
So that word outcry that you see there in verse 20 and 21, that word is a word specifically in the Hebrew language reserved for the cries of the oppressed. The Old Testament authors use that word to describe the exploitation of the weak and poor, violence against the innocent, rape, murder, all the worst evils that human beings can commit against one another. It's the word that's used of Abel's blood after he's killed and murdered by Cain, his blood crying out from the ground. It's the word that's used of the Israelites raising their voices in pain and suffering and slavery under the hand of the Egyptians. Now, a common uh, cultural trope, I'd say, oftentimes from Christians about Sodom, says that their primary sin and the primary reason for their judgment was same-sex activity. And while we certainly can't ignore that, and while the Bible certainly does speak to those realities, it's clear that this city was far gone in so many ways. This city was the pinnacle of exploitation, dehumanization, brutality. They were known in the scriptures for being proud and haughty and not having consciences that were beyond any sort of, of re or unsearing. Now let me ask this question. If that's the character of Sodom, would you really want to follow a God who doesn't even consider bringing judgment against a city like that? A God who turns a blind eye to the cries of the oppressed, of those who are crying out for justice. God's justice, church, is an expression of his goodness. God hears the cries of those who are in need, who are suffering under the weight of human evil, and he responds. God is good. Now, there's a strange part about these two verses, and, and you might have picked up on it as we read it. Does God not know whether this city is wicked or not? Right? I mean, God says, I'm going to go down there and check it out to see if that city really is as wicked as it sounds like. Uh, does he need to say that? Like, does he actually need to go check it out? I thought God knew all things. Well, think about it this way. If I know that you have a vested interest in buying my sofa, you're in, you're in the market for a new sofa, and, and you come over to my house, and, uh, and I say in your presence, me knowing that you want my sofa, well, I'm just going to get on Facebook Marketplace really quick and uh, see if anybody wants to buy this couch. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. Right? If, if I say that in your presence, I'm basically inviting you to plead your case to get the couch. Right? I'm saying, give, give, me, your best, give me your best shot. Like If you really want it, Throw in, uh, throw in your lot. That's what this language that God's doing is saying. He's saying, I'm going to go check it out. Maybe they are as evil as they say they are. Maybe they're not. He's using this language to invite Abraham in to be a priest, to stand in the gap for this city. And this gets even more interesting when, when we think about the last time those two words were used in the text of the Bible. So, so the, the, the go down and see language is used at the Tower of Babel. The same exact phrase. God says, I will go down and see whether they are as wicked as, as, uh, as it seems like they are. But what's the difference 
between God going down to see what's going on at Babel and God going down to see what's going on in Sodom. Abraham. God now has a covenant partner that he is inviting in to plead with him on behalf of the city. God now has a priest whom he has blessed to be a blessing to the cities of the world and this city in particular by praying on its behalf. And so God invites his priest in to beg for mercy on that city. Here's a question, church. Do you believe that this is true about your identity as somebody called to be a priest of God? Do, 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 you, say, do, you, do you have changes that you want to see in the lives of those around you? Do you want to see your neighbor co-worker or family member come to Jesus? Do you want to see justice done in the world? Do you want to see a breakthrough for someone suffering under mental health challenges? This passage is saying God has invited you in as a priest to start that with prayer. God invites us like Abraham in to intercede as a priest on behalf of his world. Work for God to bless the nations doesn't start with us rolling up our sleeves and getting our hands dirty. Work for God to bless the nations starts on our knees in prayer as intercessors. It's said of evangelist D.L. Moody that he carried a card in his pocket of 100 names of people that he wanted to see come to faith in Jesus. And he prayed for them continually every day of his life. When he died, it's said that 96 of those 100 people came to faith in Jesus. That is somebody who really believes that he is called by God to be a priest to intercede on behalf of other people. Do you believe that about your own life and calling? So we see what it means to be a priest is to be a holy intercessor on behalf of the nations of the world for their blessing. That's what God has called his people to do and to be. But, but that's more in the abstract. And, and Genesis 18 records for us concretely Abraham's prayer of intercession with God. It records the details of Abraham's prayer. So let's continue reading and look at his prayer to see what we can learn about intercessory prayer as priests from Abraham. So we're just going to read down through some of the verses of this prayer and then stop and make comments as we go. So let's start with verses 22 and 23. Would you read along with me there? It says, So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. That's these men that in the previous, uh, previous part of the chapter, they are actually angelic beings that came down with God to visit Abraham. I know that's a, that's, that's a loaded aside, but that's who it is. Read the first part of chapter 18. Um, so the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still, or still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So Abraham now, as he's been invited in, approaches the bench and pleads the cause of this wicked city. Now, in reading this before I studied it this week, I always thought that Abraham prayed for the city because his nephew lived there. I, I always thought it was like this, like, uh, of course he's praying for it, right? right? He has family that lives in that city. Of course he doesn't want God to judge it. 
But what's interesting is that Abraham really is praying on behalf of the wicked people of the city. Abraham doesn't mention Lot one time in this prayer. It's interesting. Abraham is praying for this city. His heart breaks and and he pleads to God, not just for his nephew's life, but for the life of the whole city. Because Abraham knows that as long as there are righteous people who love God in a place, that city stands a chance. And so let that sink in. Abraham loves this horribly unjust city. This city of violence and exploitation and cruelty. Abraham loves a city that also was a personal nuisance to him. If you go back to Genesis 14, which Mike Aiken preached for us several weeks ago, they, the, the kings of Sodom captured Lot and his family, and Abraham actually had to go in and rescue Lot from these people. So these aren't just even, this, this, isn't, this isn't even an abstract, abstract concept of wickedness. These are Abraham's actual enemies that he prays to God on their behalf. It's interesting, Abraham doesn't think they're too far gone. He doesn't self-righteously withdraw or pray for them to be burned. But how is this the case? Where does this kind of love for a wicked city come from? Well, consider with me Abraham's story for a second. The story that we've spent the summer looking at. Remember Abraham was not like this stand-up guy. He wasn't like this guy that was this God's prime candidate for the job because of how well he presented himself. Abraham was an idol-worshiping pagan from Ur. And Ur was like proto-Babylon. It was like this, this, the big, bad, unjust empire that the Old Testament prophets decry. Abraham knew what it was like to live in Sodom. He knows what it's like to be in Babylon, and he knows what it's like for God to call his name and pull him out by his grace and unleash him for something better. Abraham's love for this city came from the fact that he himself experienced the grace of God in his life. And Abraham, at some point, had to face the choice that all of us have to face. Will we continue to be humbled by the grace that saved us and love those who are once like I was? Or will we be hardened and start to resent the world that God called us to bless? Church, that's our temptation. After we're called by God, after we live as Christians for a while, we all contend towards self-righteous pride rather than loving intercession toward the world around us. We can all tend to write people off as being too far gone from God's mercy. But think about this for a second. If there are people in your life that you by name can think of, who you have written off from the mercy of God, the fact that God has you in their life shows that, God, that there's still hope for them. Because God has a priest on the ground to intercede on their behalf for their blessing. So church, don't let your righteousness fill you with haughty judgment towards others. 
Remember the story of Abraham. Remember your story and the grace that God has shown you. Let's keep going. Verse 24. It says, suppose, he says, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, uh, the Lord said, I, I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city. I will spare the whole place for their sake. See, Abraham knows the God that he's speaking to. Abraham knows that this God is, is chomping at the bit to show mercy. But he also knows that a God who doesn't deal with the sin and wickedness of Sodom isn't actually a good God. So notice, God, Abraham prays on the basis of God's justice and on the basis of God's love. It's interesting that Abraham doesn't pray to God by simply asking him to excuse the sin of the city. He doesn't pray, God, if you could just like, ignore what they've done and just turn a blind eye towards that and just show them grace, that'd be great. What does he say? Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? He's praying for God's ju justice to be done. He's praying that God would spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. Because as long as there are righteous people in the city who are being priests for that city, the wicked have a chance to turn to God. And, and look at, at the boldness and humility that Abraham exer ex exerts in these prayers. Like, he is, he is taking God's character, and essentially what he's doing is he's holding up a mirror to God's face, and he's saying, look, this is who you are. This is who you've said that you are, so be like that in this situation. Do that in the world. That's bold. That's a bold thing to say to the God of the universe. But he also, in the prayer, in verse 27, calls himself dust and ashes. And you see his humility as you read through the prayer. It's an audacious thing to come before God, even with his humility, with the boldness that he does. And yet, God, that's what God invites us to do as priests. Uh, Pastor Tyler Staten says this about our prayers specifically about our boldness in prayer. He says, we pray the safest kind of prayers. The ones so passive and vague, we'd never be able to tell if God responded to them or not. As a thought experiment, try to recall everything you've prayed for in the last week. If God answered every last one of your prayers, what would happen? And let me add to that quote and ask this. If God answered every one of your prayers from the last week, what would happen in the lives of your unbelieving friends and neighbors? What would happen in our city? Church, these are the kind of prayers that we are invited into as priests to pray with confidence. Humility, yes, but also boldness are marks of true priests interceding on behalf of their city. And Abraham persists in these bold prayers, asking if God would spare the city for, for 45 righteous, for 40, 30, 20. And every time God says, yes, I'll spare them. I'll spare the city. 
And then look at the abrupt ending to this story. Look with me at verses 32 and 33. Then he said, Abraham said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. God answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, just as the prayer seems like it's moving towards a crescendo and a climax, and there's going to be some kind of big, ridiculous claim made on Abraham's part, and there's going to be some breakthrough, it's just like, and then they went home. That's it. They went home. And you're like, what? Why? Why doesn't Abraham, if he's been so bold, why doesn't he press him a step further? Well, if you look uh, into the, the background of this text, uh, Jewish commentator Robert, Robert Alter says that the smallest unit for communally organizing people in the Jewish world was 10 people. So what that means is that 10 people was, was like Abraham's mind didn't go past 10 people. Abraham was like, all right, th- this, this is the smallest that the righteous remnant could go. But, but what do we expect Abraham to say? And what does our gut want Abraham to say? What do we want him to conclude with in this prayer? God, would you save the city for just one righteous person? Would you do it for just one? And in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, God has answered that question with a resounding yes. I will spare the city for the sake of one righteous person. You see, Jesus is the great priest. He's he's like Abraham over Sodom who weeped over Jerusalem saying, how I would have gathered you in as as a hen gathers in her chicks. Jesus prayed for his disciples and his future church, each of us, on the night before his death, that we would be united and be a blessing to the world. And while he was on the cross, Jesus, like Abraham, prayed in love for his enemies when he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And now in heaven, the Father invites Jesus, much like he invited Abraham in to be his priest, his covenant partner, to pray on behalf of all of his people. Only now, the foundation of Jesus' prayer is so much more secure than Abraham's. You see, Jesus prays like Abraham did in accord with God's just character. Jesus, before the throne of God, says to God the Father, will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? But then how is that good news for any of us? How does that mean that we're not destroyed? I mean, I mean think about the, the story of the Old Testament. Israel, God's chosen people, the people to whom God said, you are to be a kingdom of priests that were called to bless the world, they become so wicked that God in several places in the Old Testament actually looks at his people and calls them Sodom. And we have the same hearts that they do. We are no better. So then how can Jesus pray the same prayer as Abraham and us not be consumed? 
Well, the only way that we cannot be destroyed is because the one righteous man, Jesus Christ himself, has borne the judgment of Sodom in his own flesh. The justice of God fell on Jesus at the cross so that we could be declared righteous even though we are sinners. And so this is what that means for Jesus' prayers in heaven. When Jesus prays in heaven, will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? That is good news for you because Jesus has taken the just punishment for the sin of all who trust in him so that when Jesus prays that what is just before the throne of God above is for him to never stop loving you, to love you continually, unceasingly, He pleads for what is just. As Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 25 says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And as long as that priest prays for you, you will surely never face judgment. That is good news. And when we comprehend Jesus' high priestly work on our behalf, what he does on our behalf, it empowers us to be priests that bless the world. Let me close this morning with just a few rapid-fire applications of how when we actually grasp what Jesus is doing for us in heaven, it it unleashes us to be priests for the world. First, because Jesus is your great high priest, you can have humility in relation to the city, to the people around you. You'll be able to plead for the wicked cities around you rather than rail against them in self-righteousness and condescension because before the throne of God, Jesus pleads his work and not yours. That type of grace says that we are no better than Sodom. And apart from the grace of God, so goes you and I. You are who you are because of Jesus' work, not yours. Because he loved you when you were his enemy. So how can you not plead for others in humility and love? It's the first thing. Second, because Jesus is your high priest, you can also approach God's throne like Abraham with both humility and boldness. Humility, since you're welcomed in by grace and not your own works, like what business do you and I have going before the throne of Almighty God except for the work of Jesus who did all that was necessary for us? And yet we can also go before the throne with boldness because you know he accepts you with grace and justice and delights to hear your prayers. So church, pray boldly. Go before the throne of God above. He wants you to. He delights in that. Be priests. Go before him in prayer. And lastly, because Jesus is your high priest, you can truly be holy in this life. You can strive for holiness because his Holy Spirit empowers you and will never leave you and forsake you. He has given us his Holy Spirit to be a truly holy community of priests that are different, that live differently, and that can show the world a better way, a more true way 
to be human as we reflect the character of God. Church, we are sent as priests with hope into a world without hope. So let us then beautify our world with our holiness and barrage heaven with our pleas, all out of love for Jesus, our great high priest, and the world that he has called us to serve and to bless. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that we have one who stands in heaven for us, who does not tire, who will be there forever, who loves us and who prays for us. And that because of that, we are your friends. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts, break us down by your Holy Spirit to love the people in this world that are without hope and help us to take seriously your charge to us, to plead on behalf of those around us in love because we know we've received grace when we were far from God. We love you. We thank you, Jesus, that even now you stand in heaven and you plead your own blood so that we can come near to you and sing praises and worship and rejoice in the salvation that you've given us. Amen.